Hello, and welcome to Play to Find Out, a Dungeon World podcast. I'm Arthur, one of your co-hosts. I am Voidlight, also known as Eamon, your other co-host. All right, I'm also Art Projects on the Dungeon World Discord, from which this podcast has grown. Which it issues um, forth. From which it springs eternal from the font of the earth. <laughs> as um, eternal as we can make it, anyhow. Yeah, let's, 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 get, let's get one episode done first, and then we'll see how we're doing. Um... So, we've got a pretty loaded show for you tonight, but let's start out the way that we start out every episode of Play to Find Out, by talking through some highlights from our recent games. Uh, Eamon, I understand you've brought something tonight. Yeah, so, a big highlight for me is when um, is flexibility, because that's something that you re- can really appreciate in a group, and I had a nice moment where I was on a bus uh, coming home, um, and I was reading on the bus a quick start rule set. Um, for a system called The Nightmare Below, which is mm-hmm. a dungeon crawl role-playing game that is based, um, thematically anyway, it's not officially based, but uh, heavily inspired by the Darkest Dungeon uh, video game by Red Hook Studios. And a fantastic game. So good. And the this role-playing game is by Emmanuel Galetto, and I was playing the version 1.1 rule set which was pretty fresh it was it was published in june 28th of 2017 and i was just kind of reading this and it did some things really well it it had rules for tracking light and hunger and time in the dungeon which are like very survivally mechanics that a lot of games hand wave away and notably dungeon world doesn't care a lot about like rations are just sort of like a for long distance travel type of mechanic that Mm -hmm. characters aren't at risk of starving to death, like in the dungeon at any given moment necessarily. But this game did it in such a way that um, I thought would actually be fun and not tedious. And so I asked my players, Hey, what about we take a break from our current campaign and jump elsewhere in the world to like an unrelated group of characters that, but that's still in the same universe and try a a night with this rule set. Um, And they were, uh, they were down for that, uh, to, to take a break. It was also, uh, several of them couldn't be there. So it was also just me and two players, uh, trying this out and it worked rather well. Um, so we, I had them, I had them each make, uh, two characters since they would be, um, uh, since it was basically a one shot. And if one of their characters died, they could just switch to their other one. Um, immediately, since this is a fairly lethal system, a la mm. uh, Darkest Dungeon, and it went it went really well. Um, the the my my goals for the session, which were to like get a good feel for the, those mechanics, uh, were were met. Um, I I can f- uh, safely say that it it is a very fun system. I am thinking about porting some of that back into Dungeon World, uh, specifically mm-hmm. the way they sort of handle random encounters. Um, Ooh. In, in 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 short, the way it works is that you have a little pool. Um, of dice that starts out empty and every time the characters um, spend time doing something um, and that's determined as like uh, trying to translate some ancient runes, you know, searching a whole room, uh, staying behind and looting the corpses instead of just continuing. Anytime they do something that like seems like time consuming or would take extra time, not simply mm-hmm. walking from room to room or just like fighting an enemy. Um, you just take a dice and you drop in that pool. And once it reaches six, you take all the dice and then you roll them all, and any that come up with a number equal to or less than the current dungeon level, uh, mm-hmm. that means that uh, a random threat has appeared, and you would like cool. have some prepared threats. So like that would have I, to roll I, ones, and yeah. And additionally, yeah. once that uh, once that marker is uh, that that 
threshold of six dice is reached, it also means that an hour has passed. Um, mm. so, so torches will become expended. Um, oil lamps, like, are, are half expended. Uh, characters roll for hunger, stuff like that. So pretty nice. All you have to do is just every once in a while drop a dice in a pool and boom, there's your time tracking. It's sort of halfway abstracted because dropping yeah. a dice in doesn't mean 10 minutes have passed. It just means like, we're getting closer to the hour mark, you know? Yeah. So. I like that for a couple of reasons. Um, and one of them is that the, there are a lot of power by the apocalypse games that have a concept of clocks or something like that, where the GM yeah. will, will use a GM move to advance something that's happening off screen as a way to signal to the players that things could happen. Things could go badly, whatever it happens to be. And I like that system a lot because it, it, it brings some of that same player knowledge, but character d- unknowledge, you know, the dramatic irony or a player knows that as more dice get added to the pool, more danger is going to occur or has the likelihood of occurring. Yeah. Um, Oh my god. But gosh. then it also is literally a clock, which is which is one hundred percent my thing. It's um, it's it's a delicious mechanic because it gives yeah. me one more button to push and it also ties all the other mechanics together. So mm-hmm. for example, like they know that if they just sit here debating forever, they're using in game time. So if they're just like yeah. talking about a plan for a while, I'll just silently pick up one of those dice and conspicuously mm. drop it in and they're like, We're I- literally X amount closer to, you know, using up these torches that we paid money for these rations yeah, that we paid I, money for. Yeah. So they're like, we got 100%, go. 100% saving that for my Halloween game. I, I tried to do something special on Halloween and I can send um, you the, uh, the PDF if you want. There was, I think the quick start rules were free. It, this game cool. should not be confused. I'll make a note, um, to the community with the nightmare beneath, which is Different game. a separate game. Yeah. The nightmare below and the nightmare, mm-hmm. beneath. the nightmare beneath is also a very good game by Johnston Metzger but it's very, very different. That's where you are actually entering nightmares themselves, and you are in sort of an uh, a an Arabic inspired setting. Yeah, it's very different. But cool. So one more time, that's the nightmare below. We'll the include nightmare a link below. Emmanuel we'll Galetto inc- brings us that, and it mm-hmm. is a, a rollicking read and a very yeah. informative. If you want to get back and play a very dungeon crawly, qua dungeon crawl experience. Awesome. Um, very good. Lots of lessons to be learned for for dungeon world. Cool. So yeah, we will include a link in the show notes. Um, so check that out and hopefully you can bring some of those mechanics to your own table. Oh, um, sorry. I, I got sidetracked talking about the mechanics. I want to mention one thing that actually happened. In oh, the right. Game yes. Itself. Yes. Let's actually talk so highlights. One character was a, an, a middle-aged man who was this sort of gruff machismo fighter. And the other was like mm-hmm. a 10 year old boy who carried around a massive uh, spike ball on a chain in sort of an anime style where the weapon was way sure. too big for him. And at one part, the, um, the characters were at the bottom of this, um, this sort of vent shaft trying to just get out of the dungeon because they were basically out of light. There were monsters all around mm-hmm. and they're like, we just got to go. And so sure. he spun the ball in the chain and threw it upwards towards a grate that they could see that was leading to the surface. And he got a partial success. So I said, you smash through the grate, but the ball and chain flies out of your hands and that like sails through the breach. And so now you don't have something to climb up on and they didn't have rope. Mm-hmm. So the older character takes the younger character and just throws him and oh. again, gets a partial success. And so I say that he almost clears the gap, but hits the rim and knocks himself out. So he's, he's out of the, he's on the surface, but he's lying on mm-hmm. the ground unconscious. So he can't take the ball and chain and drop it down and help the other guy get up. So the final guy is sort of stranded down there alone with his friend unconscious and so he stacked corpses to get out. 
um, Ooh, which was grizzly. just like a, yeah. And, and, and yeah. there was, there was a sort of gri- even grislier moment where one of the hirelings that they had brought along had died and was in the corpse mm-hmm. pile. And as he was oh, climbing no. up, realized was still alive, but kind of ignored mm-hmm. it because he had to go. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was, that was the what? highlight there thematically. Yeah. Cool. Well, I, um, I also have brought a highlight today. Um, something that happened not in a recent game, but actually in a game that I played a while ago. This was at the climax of a, of a small campaign that I played with my current group before we got into our current, uh, our current setting. And it was, so it was the big climactic battle and the setting, the scenario was the party had to defend a sapling from these heavily industrialized elvish armies that were coming down the river from the north. Um, so they were being harried by a bunch of griffin riding elven air force members and um, trying to also keep the fight with the elvish infantry on the ground uh, stable. And there was a moment during which our immolator, our, sal- our salamander immolator named Babook, um, had, I, I think it was a, a, a full success on a spout lore. Um, although it may have been a partial success. And the result of that was the inherent knowledge that letting the sapling grow while it would be enough to stop the Elvish army from advancing for reasons, um, would not be, would, would also bring up, bring out a new elder god of the forest who wanted to kill all the salamanders. So the player, uh, as, well, in, in the character decided that the right thing to do would be to consume the sapling in fire as a way to levy a coup de gras against the, the impending elvish attack, um, which would buy them some time. So he, uh, he did it. He burned down the sapling that we, that was kind of the big thing that they had to protect at the very last big battle of the game. Um, and in doing so, he drew the ire of one of the other players who in the previous session had sworn to a different forest God to protect the sapling and bring it to, you know, bring it to full tree status. Mm, um, so party drama. Party drama. And the, uh, the player in question, who was Sylvia the halfling, um, the halfling druid, actually, um, was in, was in a shapeshifted form of a leopard. And one of the moves we had agreed on for the leopard was, uh, to rip out a throat. Um, Something like that. It was, it was a, it was a lethal, a lethal thing to do. Um, and this player happened to have one hold left right when the, uh, right when the emulator destroyed the sapling. Uh, so she killed him. Um, and I think that it was a really, it was a really cool moment for me for a couple of reasons. Um, reason one was I really enjoy intra-party conflict when that conflict is like meaningful in the context of the story and is not just you know, a personal problem or a personal conflict that has been brought into the game from outside. But when it's wholly organic and it rises from within, that's really exciting. I also really enjoyed it because it was an opportunity for there to be actual player on player violence in which I didn't have to worry about creating a mechanic to resolve it or trying to backport the aid or interfere rules onto it. It was this player spends a hold to have this narrative impact that we've established can happen. And the emulator is dead. Um, and it was a highlight also because all the players at the table were mature enough to understand that this was like the big emotional climax of the whole game. So it was time to roll last breath. No hurt feelings. It was a really cool moment for that whole group. I think it was kind of the moment where we all came together and realized, hey, we actually enjoy playing with each other a lot. Because we could not have accomplished that without a lot of maturity at the table. 
Oh yeah. Oh. The the um that this is a great segue into our GM Academy. So do you want to yeah. move move forward? I to think that? let's do it. So it just so happens that today's GM Academy is on the subject of the Druid. Um something that I think Eamon and I have both observed uh as members of the Dungeon World community at large is that there are a lot of different questions that the Druid playbook brings up from the book. Um a lot of different a lot of especially new GMs really have trouble finding out finding a way to make the Druid work at the table because of the classes it I think has the most the most ability to control the narrative, um, depending on how they're being played and what sorts of leeway they have at the table. So I think today let's talk a little bit about strategies that we have for managing the druid, making it work, making it fair, and making it fun. All right. So first of all, let's kind of uh, root ourselves in the text here and mm-hmm. and and see what this says. So on page, I believe it's one hundred five of Dungeon yep. Worlds. Page one hundred five of at least of the I think version the printing six the sixth printing. It, uh, it details the shapeshifter move, which is the the core move that the dungeon, the druid playbook is built around. That's the, their core the secret jam. sauce. And this was yeah. um, the the basic move uh, says when you call upon the spirits to change your shape, which is the trigger for the move. Roll plus wisdom on a ten plus hold three, seven and nine hold two on a miss hold one. In addition to what the GM says, so mm-hmm. that and then uh, I won't read the entire. Um, text of the move it basically says turn into an animal who you like have the ability to turn into based on the fiction and spend hold to do moves as that animal so this is a little vague and uh, different groups arbitrate it in different ways um the druid shapeshifter fac um frequently asked questions that someone has um put together um and that has been passed around the dungeon world discord quite a bit and i don't have a source on it unfortunately uh, is um, sa- says that there are three types of actions you can accomplish when you're in shapeshifted form. Um, and I-, I love that the move is structured that you always transform no matter what, which is um, which is great. Um, versus uh, two two types of actions that you could normally accomplish. So and those are do any action that would normally require a roll as long as mm-hmm. your new form makes it reasonable for you to do so. For example, if you shapeshift into a sparrow, you wouldn't be able to hack and slash against the same type of enemies that you pack slash normally because the sparrow just can't trade blows in melee mm-hmm. with the same sorts of enemies you know mm-hmm. maybe you could if the if you were fighting a mouse or something you mm-hmm. could perhaps hack and slash as a sparrow but just simply trying to attack an orc probably wouldn't trigger hack and slash which is a good point about um something that not everyone understands about dungeon world which is just simply attacking doesn't trigger hack and slash you right. have to be fictionally positioned such that you could engage in like a pitched combat with that creature um which and, is a way and that to also signal. yeah that also works the other way around you know a barbarian yeah. at full strength wouldn't roll hack and slash to step on a mouse um, right yeah you would just it, simply kill it or do your damage you know this mm-hmm. yeah in, in a similar way like you don't have to roll hack and slash to attack someone who's tied up you know you just kill them you know mm-hmm. uh like like executing somebody uh, who's asleep or something like that would uh, yeah. only, only in certain situations like require any sort of role. All right. The second type of action you could accomplish while you're shapeshifted is to do any action that doesn't require a role. Again, as long as your new form would make it reasonable. Mm-hmm. So as a sparrow, you can just sort of fly around for free. You know, as a mole, you should be able to tunnel underground for free, you know, like the types of things that they do every day. Yeah. The, the final 
type is the one that's referenced by the, the move in the Duntral book, which is to spend some of your hold to trigger one of your new form's monster moves without rolling. So mm-hmm. you get to do whatever the move says you do um, and basically create a, a fictional moment. So, for example, if you turn into a giant snake with a gobble them whole move and you spend hold to trigger that move, you gobble them whole. It just mm-hmm. happens. You don't so you roll hack and slash. Time. You don't necessarily roll defy danger. Right. Because you already um, rolled for it. Like, those are essentially yeah. the the uh, perhaps delayed benefits of your wisdom roll mm-hmm. that you made when you were transforming. Because the roll isn't to transform, it's how effective your transformation is. Like, that's why yeah. you always transform no matter what. So, uh, the confusion arises um, with uh, what actually happens in fiction when you spend that hold. Because mm-hmm. I think that the core effect of what that uh, thing says should happen... Um, but then that could lead to further rolls. For example, if you gobble someone whole, that doesn't mean instantly kill, you know? You could gobble mm-hmm. someone whole and it creates this moment where like they're trapped inside of you, you know? And maybe they could, you could roll defy danger with constitution to try to like, mm-hmm. you know, keep them fle- down. Flex, yeah. Fle- keep from vomiting them up as they're trying to stab mm-hmm. you from within or, or trying yeah. not to pass out from your acid or, mm-hmm. uh, on and on. What you said earlier about the one player ripping out the throat of the other, um, uh, on, um, on, if I had players that, um, perhaps the one player was okay with him dying, but wanted a chance to defend himself, I might say, like, you have to defy danger against him leaping at you with the threat of lethal harm if he doesn't. Like, mm-hmm. ripping out your throat is what will happen if you fail this defy danger, you know? Yeah. Um, so I might not instantly allow a player versus player kill on that, mm-hmm. but still, like, they didn't have to roll to jump at their throat. Like, that's instant based on the, um, the fact that they they they're spending the hold um mm-hmm. the the one of the hardest things about the druid is that it kind of says like it's kind of assumed that you will figure out things that that hold can be spent on um for the animals and a lot of people take the the route of coming up with short little bulleted lists of mm-hmm. like uh two or three like per animal and then kind of having these standbys where like they know exactly what's going to happen when they turn into the animal again. And, uh, if, if you want, there's lots of lists like that that are made. I've seen them as spreadsheets. Um, I've seen them mm-hmm. as, uh, as, as docs. Um, and, and some of them are, are, are quite good and, and do things that you might not think yeah. of, especially, um, to think of like unique, uh, cinematic things that these animals can do. Like what are the sort of like special, special characters of that animal that we want to actually see because when someone yeah. turns into like a rat um that helps them because they're small but a rat can do certain things and a horned lizard which is also small can do certain other things so like mm-hmm. i want to see that horned lizard like not just be a, a simply flavor but like do things that only a horned lizard could do you know like because that's interesting and that's really flavorful of the desert whereas like th- the land that they're from uh if if a good player is playing the druid should really feel thematic you know it's not just like every land mm-hmm. has one flying creature one small creature one buff creature like you know right i've yeah. seen so this done really well yeah. why don't we talk a little bit about some of the different kinds of creatures that players in our games or other games that we've seen have picked up um and some of the moves that we use for them um that drew it from my game sylvia uh the halfling was from the frozen north um so at one point we decided that she had it that she uh, was from the land where the orcas are. Um, and th- this came up because at one point the group was trying to forge a river. Uh, ford a river? Get across a river. Ford, and yeah, ford. that's the one. Um, where they were trying to ford a river and 
Sylvia, you know, pipes up and says, hey, I, I can turn into an orca that's 30 feet long, and the river is about 30 feet wide. So I'm going to shapeshift. Um, and so we, we play through the shapeshift move. Um, she got her hold. And what we decided was the move that the orca had was um, carry a small creature. Um, you know, swim with something on its back. Um, and that ended up being a fairly sensible move for the situation. Um, I don't know what what uh, what are some interesting monster or interesting animal moves that you've seen your druids take. So, um, what I'm about to say touches on another element of the druid, which is what sorts of creatures can you turn into anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I normally allow the player to say like whatever you turn into, you're saying that's from your home, and because like it's implied yeah. in the playbook that they're from a certain type of terrain. And so I say like, well, what are the great forests f- like where you are? Because we're not just assuming that like this is matching earth's biomes or anything. Um, and sometimes I have a player ask if they can turn into a supernatural creature. And I usually say, as long as that creature is uh, common, you know, in that region. And, mm-hmm. and if you're saying, I had a player once that was, uh, turning it, uh, they, their, their domain was the towering mountains. They were sort mm-hmm. of like a rugged, like mountain druid. And they said that these mountains had pegasi all over them. And so they were turning oh, yeah, into sure. a pegasi. And mm-hmm. so I was really like, that's, that's fine. Like they're, they're turning into a pegasi. And one of the moves they had was they could fly around, um, just fine. But if they wanted to carry passengers, they would be spending that move, um, or that hold in order to mm-hmm. do so. And when, when they spent that hold, it's basically like for, um, as long as you wish, you know, like you can like carry this passenger, like for, uh, as mm-hmm. l- until, un- until you would like n- normally tire. Um, other cool ones that I've seen are, uh, are negative effects actually. Mm-hmm. Um, when that, that interesting six minus result where you get one hold, but you get some other effects. My favorite mm-hmm. ones are the ones that tie it back to a malfunction in the transformation that Ooh. kind of show like the dangers of it. And, um, I've seen some of the druid lists that suggest these, for example, um, if you turn into a mole, but you like you, you turn, botch the transformation, uh, your, um, you might shun the sun, you know? And so like Ooh. your character is terrified to be in direct sunlight. Uh, a hilarious one is if you turn into an owl, when you shapeshift back to normal, your head might be on backwards, you know, <laughs> which, or, uh, or, um, the, for the wolf, like maybe, uh, when you turn into a wolf, you feel the call of the pack and they summon mm-hmm. you. And so like, you feel compelled to like go elsewhere and help them take down some deer and like waste a bunch of time or something. Sure. Or sort of the anamorphs, an yeah. the anamorph style, your instincts take over when you first transform and you have to yeah, actively and that's resist something it. To ask the druid, like it, just like you would ask the mage or the wizard, like what does magic is super nebulous. Like, what is it like for you? How do you actually interface with it for the druid? Like, are they just a human mind in an animal body? Or are they turning into an animal and struggling to retain their own consciousness? Mm-hmm. Are they being possessed by an animal spirit? Like, depending on what the answer to that is, what the player wants, like, that's going to change subtly and perhaps dramatically how you actually interface with that move, you know? Because if they're trying to, like, resist primal instincts every time they turn into an animal, that's interesting, you know? And mm-hmm. that's going to be, like, that's going to inform what your six minus results are. And your hard moves might be, like, they kind of go primal and maybe like now the other members of the party might have a not aligned with them wild animal to deal with, you know, and they might be like 
comp- you you might spend your hold as a GM that you gain from the uh you know your hold to make a hard move to like try to compel the player to threaten the party or or otherwise act against their interests you know or something something along those lines which is which is cool as well yeah so i think unless you've got anything else you want to bring up on the topic of druids and having them uh be a be an active force in your games why don't we move it right along to our next (laughs) segment meta talk i do want to call out one of these one of these tables that is suggesting um, moves to the druid has uh, a move for the electric eel that is mm. reveal a shocking truth. Oh which, no, that's which terrible! I just, I just is like, oh no, we're getting into just pun city. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> take a quick dive into the dungeon world community at large and talk a little bit about methods for single player dungeon world and Eamon, i understand that you've brought something to the table today i have i do i want to um sort of smoothly segue this with the previous um with the previous uh segment that we talked about by saying that certain playbooks are more well suited to um to a single player game than than others and and what i mean by a single player game is one player and one gm just kind of like mm. in in partnership telling a story together where the one player is sort of the single star of the of the story and everyone else is, is npcs the um the druid is a great one because the druid uh if you're if you're just relax the um the narrative framing a little bit and give the the druid like the full spotlight then they mm. can really do like they can fulfill most party roles by turning into appropriate animals. You know, they can turn into a very perceptive animal to check for traps, and they can turn into a very quick animal to escape danger, and a very mm-hmm. tanky animal if they want to, um, if they want to kind of take on a, a, a head-on fighter role. And so they're good in the sense that um, that they can fulfill all those narrative things. Some people are are concerned when they're approaching this idea of a single-player role-playing experience about balance. Which is something that Dungeon World is an ideal system for because it, it alle- alleviates some of that a lot. Like, you have a lot of control uh, over the difficulty of the game as the, as the GM at any given moment. And if you're afraid about the character instantly dying because they don't have their perfect, like, you know, ADC carry and, like, their, their, you know, their rogue scouting for traps, like, mm-hmm. that's, that's not a threat in Dungeon World. Like, it is, like, the numbers won't directly be against you. That being said, there are, um, supplements that I have seen created to address this, um, both from the mechanical and narrative side. And one that is phenomenal is called the legacy weapon. And that is, I think I have a copy of it here. Hold on. I didn't have this pulled up before. Oh, here it is. So it's under, I had it under my playbooks. This is, I want to see who, just give a shout out to whoever made it. And it is written by Phil Vecchioni. Sorry for the delay. That's written by Phil Vecchioni, the legacy weapon. Um, And basically the idea is that there's this weapon that has been passed down through the generations. And anyone who wields the weapon and then dies or perhaps is killed by the weapon 
A fragment of their soul is trapped within the weapon, and then the wielder can draw on their, like, skills slash knowledge slash powers. So, for one reason, this provides a narrative framework for why you'd be focusing on this one character, because they're the current wielder of this weapon. Mm. But it also allows them to, like, take moves from other classes um, and things like that. So, for example, you could have um, the druid, and they could take... um, you know, the Burning Grand move if they wanted to have the Immolator's move, or they could take the Quest move from the Paladin, or the Lay on Hands move if they wanted healing, or the Armored move from the Fighter. So it gives the ability for, um, and, and it has, uh, has extensive guides in this, uh, in this supplement for, like, which moves are really good for multi-classing, which moves don't necessarily work because they have prere- prerequisite moves or, you know, don't, don't make sense outside of the, outside of that playbook. And, um, it's kind of also like a little campaign guide. Like it gives you the the tools to kind of like flesh out the legacy weapon and create like what it looks like, what it does, what minor abilities it has. Um, for example, like it could transform into an innocuous looking stick, or it could transform into a tattoo on your arm, you know, or maybe it's also an instrument. You know, there there's all these different things, mm-hmm. and it, it gives you something to. Uh, yeah, it's it's a. Needless to say, it's a very fleshed out um, supplement that even has some custom monsters in it and things like that. But, um, I have, uh, this was a way to make, um, the player not feel lonely because when you're playing with one player, they might be like, this is, this isn't because this is the point of this campaign. This is just because we couldn't get enough people together like that. Mm -hmm. There's that sense. There's that sense when you're playing with one person. So if you have this, you're like, no, no, no. Like this is a campaign that like, would be lessened by too many people. Yeah, this is know? deliberately for the two of us right now. Yeah. And these one can actually one. be shorter, you know. A lot mm-hmm. of times you could do this if you've got a, you know, this one friend who's really far away, you could do a play-by-post with something like this. Yeah. Um you could and do like short in-person sessions, you know. There's a lot of strengths to one person actually yeah. like spotlight sharing is super easy. It's just right. a back and forth pendular thing, you know. Have you ever done one person role playing? So I actually have not. Um, the the smallest group I've ever played with is two players, um, but I do occasionally have sort of one on ones with the players in my main game. When, for instance, we want to flash it, flesh out something in more detail or do a quick scene, that sort of thing. So the, the while the legacy weapon is not necessarily the single thing that I would want to use in order to do a one on one session, if I wanted to create if I wanted to have like a meaningful, a, a meaningful extended sequence with just one player, that'd be the way I do it. Um, the, you know, with with like a de- if I were looking for a deeply or not even deeply, but a deliberately mechanical experience for them to play solo, it, it sounds ideal. Additionally, um, you're touching on the fact that playing with one player um, makes the mechanical things less of a consideration, honestly. Because um, I, I've played with one player in the past, and my experience of it, and I, I can't pinpoint exactly why, but it was just much more narrative. Like, it was much more of a storytelling yeah. back-and-forth experience where we played for over an hour um, before there was a role made in the session mm-hmm. at all. Just because they were sort of taking things in and, and, and experiencing this thing and, and being cautious, you know, because they knew that yeah. no one was going to come in and no stuff like that. that. And but what? it also it has another piece to it, which is you don't have to manage spotlight when you're playing with one person. It flows very yeah. naturally. It it doesn't oh, yeah, require that's the strength you. Strength of it. Yeah. 
it's just like, here's what you see. Now you tell me, you know, and, and they, they, they also don't feel um, like they're ever hogging something. So they'll kind of indulge and you get to like, enjoy them really mm-hmm. fleshing out their character and, and telling us exactly uh, what he or she is doing. And yeah, I've, I've had, I've had some good experiences with it. I, I was running through a, a, a Mark Tigart uh, dungeon starter um, with a friend of mine over the phone uh, just to allow him to uh, play Dungeon World because mm-hmm. it was something that he had never played and that I had told him a lot about. And um, and he, we were able to get a pretty good feel of the system just with one player and, and a GM, which was uh, surprising to me that it's that flexible. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. For sure. Please, uh, if if you're if you're inclined to send us mail and you have played in one player one GM scenarios, let us know what worked, what didn't, what did you not expect, mm-hmm. and uh, what tips would you have? Yeah. And speaking of tips that you can bring back to your own games, I'd like you to picture this. All right. So, not to become too repetitive but uh, this uh, this is another picture of this that is inspired by something i read on the uh D with porn stars blog um which is certainly not as crass as it sounds um and is really uh mind-bending for me and just seemed really out there when i read it and the basic concept is that what if um the paradigm of of knowledge being uh, cataloged um in books which is a very medieval thing that like if knowledge is going to be stored at all, it's going to be stored in books or scrolls was just simply not the case. And that the way, instead of being in bound sheets of paper or parchment, the way that knowledge was stored was that it was inscribed into the scales of snakes and, and other reptiles. Um, and that was the only way it could be done either because paper didn't exist or because like the words would resist, you know, uh, other formats. Mm-hmm. And, and they had this whole system where, um, people who were properly trained could allow the snakes to run through their hands and over their arms. And by feeling their backs as they slithered by would sort of read the story as in Braille. So a smaller snake snake could be like a memo or something. A massive Python could be a novel, you know, and giant, you know, building sized snakes would have like the history of nations and things like that. And, uh, and they sort of expanded that perhaps like tortoises could have different types of, things in their shells and stuff like that. And they even went so far as to say that there, there were these special devices that were these sort of, um, spheres with, uh, with holes throughout them and the snakes would slither through that. And that was a way to, um, to read it if you weren't trained in like doing it with your bare hands, um, in a sort of braille like fashion. And I thought this was, it's interesting in and of itself as a way to perhaps a certain culture in your game could have a very bizarre system of their uh, mm-hmm. scholarship or something like that. And it also kind of adds this like this edge where being a scholar is actually like a really dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. You have to basically be a snake tamer. But it also inspired me to like push the boundaries. Like, are my worlds just, you know, medieval worlds with different names to things? Or am I really making it a wonderful esoteric place where, where these sorts of, uh, delightful things i've had players suggest um things along those lines that became like beloved sort of uh flavor hallmarks of of Mm -hmm. settings you know and that that, that's that's to me the golden moments of dungeon world or like when you just come up with this idea that you can't stop thinking about yeah you know so why don't we talk through a couple of scenes that we could use in a world where that's the reality um sure one one that occurs to me right off the bat is you've given a bard and a golden opportunity possibly with a cost 
to charm a snake. You know, a bard comes up and plays a, a soothing tune so that the snake is docile enough to be read, perhaps by the wizard. Um, it's an ideal oh, yeah. opportunity to do an aid or interfere as well for the wizard's handling of the animal, aided by the the bard's music, or just for the bard to to just to manage on its own. Um, and then you've got the other side of it, where you know you you the party breaks into the into the library and doesn't realize that it's not books it's snakes here and they hear the hiss oh yeah, there's that's a snake the horrible here. realization yeah. you know or the the unwelcome truth mm-hmm. you see all the shelves but they aren't really shelves the way you've seen them before they're almost like racks as though as though to hold cord um and as you walk down you you feel the crunch and the crisp of scales underneath your feet and you hear in the distance a rattling, which, you know, it's a library. It's supposed to be quiet here. And, you know, go deeper with that. Go nuts. Yeah. Um, Shed skins could be out of date editions mm-hmm. or that are incomplete. <laughs> if you were the I druids, do enjoy that. this is kind or of our, ultimately, like, nature druid episode. Maybe if, the if, druid can turn into, mm-hmm. you know, one of these things. Oh, that's very good. Uh, yeah, I would like to shapeshift into a snake with a secret message on it, um, and then use it and then impersonate the snake with the actual message and give, uh, wow. yeah. you know, the wrong information to somebody. Oh boy. That's very good. Another one that I can think of, uh, is just the poetic justice. Like maybe this villain has been chronicling their, their horrible exploits mm-hmm. and you charm that snake and they are constricted to death by their own ah. you know, chronicle deeds or something like that yeah anyway so we won't we won't speculate much further there's right that's, that's ripe with ideas mm-hmm. but let us know uh let us know either uh over email or over the discord wherever it is that you want to join the community uh let us know if you use this in your game and how it goes and what crazy takes your players have on it um, and speaking of joining the community, this is the part of the show where ordinarily we would answer emails from you, the listeners, uh, and the community at large. However, because this is an early episode, we don't have any emails to get through. But Amen, what's that email address where they can reach the, the group of us here on the Play to Find Out podcast? So hit us up at play to find out, all lowercase, um, no spaces or hyphens, at protonmail.com. That's mm-hmm. Uh, P-L-A-Y-T-O-F-I-N-D-O-U-T at protonmail.com. That's P-R-O-T-O-N-M-A-I-L.com. So send us an email with your questions, comments, thoughts on the things we've talked about this episode. And we'll look forward to hearing from all of you out there in the listening land. Um, And with that, I think that's going to conclude this edition of Play to Find Out, a Dungeon World podcast from the Dungeon World Discord. Once again, I've been Arthur, one of your hosts, Art Projects on the DW Discord. And I have been Voidlight, also known as Eamon, or sorry, Eamon, also known as Voidlight on the Dungeon World Discord. It's been a thrill to have you at the table today. See you next time on Play to Find Out. (laughs) 